If you have a Bible, open with me to the Gospel of Luke. We've been working through Luke for a while. I'm going to jump right in. We're in Luke 18. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 18. Very famous story here. It's mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Story of the rich young ruler. The scripture says this. We say it every week, but if you need a Bible, there's some back there for you. It says, and a, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And am I, is that right? Am I 18? 18? Okay. I'm realizing now my numbers aren't matching up, so good. Thank the Lord. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we'll have this back here behind me. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your mother and father. Just essentially going through uh, the first part of the Ten Commandments uh, that Jesus is walking through. And he said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. And then when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell everything you have and distribute to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But scripture says that when he heard these things, when this rich young ruler heard these things, he became very sad because he, had, uh, he, he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then those who were around there, they, they heard Jesus say that, and they said, well, then who? Who can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God alone. And Peter says, well, we have left our homes and we have followed you. And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. God, again, speak to us through this passage, this difficult word, this hard saying of our Lord. God, help us to hear the truth in it. God, you are demanding something from us this morning. And I pray we would have the courage and the faith to let go. God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, jumping right into this story, this is a very very popular story, very famous story. Um, as you read this story, at least maybe on first go, it seems like this man is approaching Jesus in all the right ways, right? That's what it seems like. It seems like this is a guy who should be, who's pretty admirable. He's approaching, he's calling Jesus a good teacher, right? He's expressing, a, he's expressing a sincere spiritual interest. He's coming to Jesus with this question, maybe even a certain level of humility. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark, as he's telling the story, he talks about the man literally comes and he kneels before Jesus. And in fact, this man admits that he lacks something. He knows that he lacks something. He knows that something is missing. And he asks this critically important question. And this is critical for him and for all of us. What must I do to inherit eternal life. In other words, he's, he seems to be admitting that um, I don't have it all together. I don't, I, don't ha I don't have it. How can I get there? This man would be praised in many of our churches, right? 
expressing this interest, going to Jesus, seemingly being very humble. But as you understand this ancient culture and how men would typically approach rabbis in the first century, we get to the heart of really uh, this man's motive. We can better understand where this man is coming from. And it becomes clearer and clearer as the story goes on. The, the bowing here is over the top. That's, that's not how men would approach rabbis uh, in the first century. In, in some ways, it's even a little manipulative. And then he calls Jesus, this young celebrity rabbi, a good teacher. And, and Jesus says, no, 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 that, that's, that's not how you approach a rabbi. You approach humbly, but not like that. And he immediately redirects his attention to the goodness of God. The rich man, be clear, the rich man is not there to worship Jesus. He's there to impress him. He's there to impress him. And so Jesus, again, immediately redirects this man's attention from essentially his own goodness, which becomes clear, to God's goodness. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. He says, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery or murder or steal or bear false witness and so on. And now we're beginning to see a little bit deeper into this man's soul because how does he respond? I've been doing those things since I was a kid. I've been obeying the rules since I was a kid. I've been well-behaved since I was a kid. Have, if, if anyone, haven't I earned my spot here? He, he knew there was something not quite right in himself. He knew he lacked something. He had a sense that he hadn't done enough, right? He had a sense that, you know, and some of us, some of us can identify, we've been doing and doing and working hard and trying and doing more and better, and yet still, at the end of the day or at the end of the decade or near the end of our life, we look back and we wonder, we, we, we have this guilt and we have this fear, and we think, I've not done enough. I know still something is not right in me. And Jesus is going to get to the point. This is really Jesus' point altogether, is that he could never do enough. We could never do enough. No one can do enough. They can't work hard enough. They can't do more. They can't do better. Nothing that we can do on our own will guarantee us a seat with Jesus for eternity. And yet this is exactly what this man had been doing since he was a child, following the rules. Some of you are not so good at following the rules, right? You've got your story to tell. Some of you may be church kids. You've grown up in this. You're good at looking good. You're good at following the rules. And Jesus is, is getting in this guy's face, and he's, he's essentially holding up a mirror. He says, you've been working so hard, haven't you? You've been working hard since you were a kid, and you still know you can't earn it. You still know deep down in your soul that this won't get you anywhere. This man had... Uh, great financial wealth. This man had great moral wealth, but Jesus says that's not enough. And then Jesus does something really painful for this guy. He cuts right to the heart, as Jesus does so many times in the Gospels, and he immediately brings up the guy's money. Doesn't that feel so offensive, right? I mean, there's few things more personal to us than our money and our stuff. And Jesus goes right for this man's heart. This, this guy is essentially bragging that since he was a kid, he's kept all the rules. And Jesus then goes right to it. And he says, well, what about your money? 
But Jesus, being so gracious, he, he does it in this very tender way. He says, one thing you still lack, sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. In the gospel of Mark, as Mark is telling the story, it literally says, and Jesus looked at this man and he loved him. And then he said, sell all you have and come follow me. Jesus, Jesus loved the man who loved his stuff. Jesus is trying to reinterpret for this man what love really means, what love really looks like. And yet Jesus' command, I think if any of us were to hear this, if we were to hear this command from Jesus, it doesn't sound very loving, does it? Is this the command that you want? Is this what you want Jesus up in your face telling you? Okay, here's what you, you lack this one thing. All you have to do, this is easy. You only have to do one thing. Just sell everything you have and give it away. That's what he's calling this man to do. When Jesus calls us to let go of things that we cling to so tightly, it usually doesn't feel like love. It feels like, it feels painful. It feels difficult. We may even think that Jesus doesn't love us or Jesus doesn't know our situation. What is he calling me to? What is he calling you to this morning? Jesus looked at this man, he loved this man, and he called him to give up everything because he knew that this rich man's love of his money would be a cancer that would ultimately destroy him. He's trying to save this man. This man was clinging so tightly to his stuff, so tightly to his money. He thought he was okay because he, had co he kept all the commandments when he was young. But Jesus, he really is only focusing on this first commandment, right? The, the first commandment in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other God before me. Martin Luther talks about we, we can never break any of the Ten Commandments until we've first broken the first. It's really just about the first, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Don't worship anything other than me, God says. Don't hold so tightly for your security and your significance and even what satisfies you, anything other than me, because everything else will betray you. And everything else will just demand more and more and more and more of you. And so the last thing we hear from this man, we can see where his God is. We can see what he's holding to for security. We can see what he's holding to for his hope. He's holding to his money, and so what does it say? He went away sad. He was brokenhearted, right? Because his God was being called into question. God was saying, give up that and come and follow me. And the guy in the end said, I can't give up that. Not even for you. I, I can't give that thing up. That, that's who I am. I only understand myself in light of this wealth. I only understand myself in light of my moral success and track record of good behavior. God, I can't let go of this stuff because that's, that's proof that I've been a good guy. That's proof that I've, been, I've worked so hard. That's proof that I'm good enough. And Jesus is saying, you got it all wrong. None of that is who you are. None of that defines you. None of that can give you any security. None of that will save you. Let it go. It says, when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. It says the cost was just too great. The sacrifice was too great. 
Jesus demanded too much, right? Jesus is demanding a serious transformation here. All these imperative statements, go, sell, give, come, and follow me. Let me ask you this question, church. Have you ever been disturbed by Jesus? Most of the time. Has your life ever been disrupted by Jesus? And I'll say this to you, church. If, you've, if your life has never been disrupted by Jesus, I fear for you. I fear for you. Because Jesus is demanding. In fact, Jesus demands everything from us. But he gives us so much more in return. The life of a disciple is a difficult life and a difficult calling. The cost of discipleship is great. What, what would God call you to let go of? Is there something in your mind that you are holding so tightly to that if God says, that's the thing I want from you, that you would choose that thing over our Lord? Let me ask it to you this way. What's the one thing you hope God wouldn't ask for? What is that thing? What if God says, give up your desire to be married and come follow me? Give up your plan for career advancement and come and follow me. Give up your reputation and come follow me. Give up your retirement plan and come and follow me. What, your heart, what is your heart attached to? Where are your affections? What are you truly worshiping? Scripture says in Luke 12, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can find where your heart is when you think about what you're treasuring. And so Jesus gives this warning, this very serious warning. He says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And of course, those who heard it, and if we hear it now, we would respond the same way. Well, then who? And then how do you do it? What does this mean for us? And the people who heard it, they were clearly confused and astonished for a few reasons. One of the reasons is because in the ancient world, um, very similar to our world today, having wealth was equated to being blessed, right? And so there was, and there was passages that, that seemed to back this up. There are other passages that give a balance to this. But for example, in Proverbs 10, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. Or in Proverbs 14, wealth is a crown of the wise. And oftentimes it was also assumed on the other end that if a, if a person was poor or if a person was sick or if a person was disabled in some way, then he must have done something wrong. Because being poor and sick, that's not being blessed. He must have done something wrong. He must, this must be a consequence to God's wrath in this man's life. But we see, of course, in, for example, in John 9 with the man born blind, that's what they were asking. They were saying, this man is born blind. Who sinned? Was it him or his parents? Someone had to blow it here for this guy to have this problem. And Jesus says, no. It wasn't him. It wasn't his parents. It was so the glory of God might be revealed. This is, this is a picture of God's glory. This isn't a picture of his judgment. 
And so Jesus' statement was confusing to them. It was confusing for another reason, too. Jesus had been around other rich people already in the story of the Gospels, and yet had never before demanded that they give up everything and give everything away to come and follow him. That's just not Jesus' MO. He had never done that before. And so they're shocked at what Jesus is saying. This is such a huge demand. He'd been around other people with money. He wasn't calling them to do that. So what's going on? We see, for example, in Luke 19, which we'll probably get to in a few weeks, God willing, Jesus doesn't demand anything of Zacchaeus, and yet he, he commends him. Zacchaeus says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give half of what I own to the poor. And Jesus says, well done. He doesn't ask him for anything else. And when Jesus spoke with Nicodemus, who was a rich man in John chapter 3, he didn't bring up his wealth at all. When, when, when he asked essentially that same question, all Jesus said to him was, you must be born again. That's what you need. He's speaking to these individuals based on where these individuals are. And yet here, Jesus demands this rich man to give away everything he has And he says to the disciples that it is indeed difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't want you to miss the power of what Jesus is saying here. I don't want you to miss the force of what Jesus is saying here. Because throughout the centuries, and maybe some of you have even heard these things before, but but commentators and, and several pastors have tried to essentially neuter what Jesus is saying in this passage. When Jesus says, it's, it's harder for a, a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Some commentators will say something along these lines. Well, what really Jesus is saying is that there was a, there was a gate in Jerusalem that was low to the ground, and it was called the eye of a needle. And for a camel to enter into the city, they would have to humble themselves and bow down and enter through this gate. And so what Jesus is saying here is that this man must humble himself to enter the kingdom of God. There, there was no gate in, there, well, let me tell you this. There is a gate in Jerusalem named the Eye of a Needle, but it wasn't named that until about a thousand years after Jesus died. So that's not what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is saying something altogether different. One, one writer says this, Frederick Buechner in his book, Telling the Truth. He says, Jesus is really saying something like this. Hear this, church. It's, it's, harder, uh, than, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for Nelson Rockefeller to get through the night deposit slot of First National Bank. Let me read that again. Harder than for Nelson Rockefeller to get through the night deposit slot of First National Bank. It's impossible right? That's not just difficult. That's impossible for him to enter the kingdom of God. And so what does Jesus mean here? What is Jesus getting at? How difficult, he even repeats himself in this passage, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There's, some, there's a struggle here with this material wealth. Paul will say something similar in 1 Timothy. He says, he says the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's why this guy was sad. He loved his stuff. Jesus loved him, but this man loved his stuff, and so it was painful to let go of that. So what is it about riches? What is it about money that made Jesus regard, regarded, as, regarded as such an obstacle to entering the kingdom of God? 
one of the reasons is that having material wealth, and there's, there's a wide spectrum, I know, in this room, there's a wide spectrum of, of, of wealth and of resources and of access to resources, but having material wealth can often mask a spiritual poverty in our lives. Having, having stuff, having at least the illusion of security in possessions or in a stable job or in a bank account or a retirement account, that can produce the illusion that we are safe and that that's what's keeping us that way. And it can often mask this thing deep in our hearts that says we're actually bankrupt. We actually don't have anything that God didn't give us. An abundance of possessions can fool us into thinking that we have an abundant life. And it's a lie. Those two things aren't the same. And as you read through, especially through the book of Proverbs, you see that there there are situations where people, um, they are wealthy, they do have resources, and it's a sign of God's blessing. And some people have resources because they're corrupt. And because they steal and because they exploit the poor. Some people people are poor because they've chosen to live this life of faithfulness to Christ and have chosen a life or a ministry or a work that isn't lucrative in this world. And some are poor because they're lazy and they don't work hard or they spend foolishly, right? So it's not so simple. But it's especially hard for the wealthy. It is. It's especially hard for the wealthy. Money is so dangerous. Stuff is so dangerous. It can convince us. It does convince us. It convinces me of this this false sense of security that I'm going to be all right. No matter what. And it it is smoke that can be blown away. You know, even the the wisest man to ever live, Solomon says that he who loves money, he never have enough. And you know that, right? Maybe maybe you you started out and you were making, I mean, I remember my first job, um, I I was looking it up the other day because my son just got his first job. I was making $4.75 an hour, which was minimum wage there. I worked at a video store. Many of you probably don't even know what a video store is, but I worked at a video store. That was my first job. Um, And I remember I was making $4.75 an hour. And I even remember then as a teenager thinking, I mean, if I was making seven bucks an hour, like I would be living like a king. Like that would be insane to me if I went from $4.75 to $7 an hour. I really remember that. And then I remember, you know, getting another job and another job and, and, you know, maybe making, uh, you know, something like $15,000 a year and thinking, you know, when when I'm making making $25,000 a year, I mean, it's going to be insane. Like, I can't even imagine having that much money, making $25,000 a year. And then, and then you get there, right? You, you, you think, my number is my number's 30,000, my number's 50,000, my, my number's 100,000, my number's 200,000. And what happens when you get there? It's just, you move the goal, right? It's never enough for you. It's, if that's your thing, if that's what you're holding on to, to feel secure, bad news, church, you're never going to be secure. You, what you have done with that, that goal is you have now bought yourself a lifetime of insecurity. That's what that's gotten you.
This, this sense that our money and our stuff can make us secure or point to our significance is, is completely opposite of the life that God is calling us to in his kingdom. One writer says that recognizing our spiritual poverty is the first step into the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the first step. To enter the kingdom of God, we must first realize that we are spiritually and morally bankrupt, that we bring nothing to the table, that we are destitute without the grace of God, no matter what we have in our bank account. That's what this guy didn't get. This guy looked at his moral resume. This guy looked at his his successful track record. He says, "If, if I haven't done enough, who has? It's a confession that we we know we have no security in this life, no security in the next life based on our own performance, based on our own personal success. And this is very hard, church. This is very hard for rich people to do. It just is. This message has been the same throughout Luke 18. The message has been humility. The message has been desperation, dependence. These are the marks of the kingdom people. But again, the warning is not just for the rich. I would would put it this way. This passage is not just for the rich, but it's especially for the rich. It's not only for the rich, but it's especially for the rich. Greed is almost impossible to self-identify. Do you know that? Greed is almost impossible to self-identify because people naturally measure themselves or compare themselves with someone who has more stuff, right? Again, if, you, if, you, if you're making 20 grand, you're looking at the guy making 35 grand thinking, my gosh, that guy's rich. Maybe you're making 50 and you're looking at the guy making 100 and you're thinking, that, that's what real wealth is like. We always are comparing ourselves, you know, and then you, you go to Africa and you're with your brothers and sisters there and they're living on about a dollar a day and you're thinking. We, we, we talk, Luke talks about money. Jesus talks about money more than anything else except for the kingdom of God. So it's hugely important. We talked a few weeks ago that if you're making, what was the number? I think $32,000. If you're making $32,000 a year, that puts you in the, in the 1% globally. You're making more than 99% of the people on the planet, if that's your household income. It's hard to think of ourselves as greedy. It's hard to think of ourselves as, as lover of money because we always look to those who have more than us. Few people really think they're rich, or pe- few people feel like they're rich. Money is dangerous because it can, it can destroy you. Hear this, church. Money is dangerous because it can destroy you whether you have it or not. Money can destroy you whether you have it or not. Envy and covetousness is as deadly as greed and pride. Are you, are you spending to feel significant and secure? Are you saving to feel significant and secure? How much do you think about your money and your stuff and your security and your success? For a lot of us, probably a lot, right? J.C. Ryle puts it this way. I'm going to have this on the screen. Let us watch against the love of money because it is a snare to the poor as well as to the rich. It's not so much the having of money as the trusting in it which ruins the soul. 
And that's what Paul says, right? It's the love of money. It's this obsession with money. It's this where, where all of your attention goes, where your life or, orbits around. That is deadly and the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus' statement should rattle us like it rattled the disciples. It rattles me. It's not easy to get up here and preach, guys. I mean, if you want up here, just let me know. We'll get you on the calendar. As we said, part of what shocked those who heard Jesus' statement was this assumption that the rich are blessed. And so, so if, if they risk exclusion, then who is left to be saved? If this man is out, right, this is a good guy. He's been keeping the commandments. He's faithful. If this guy is out, and he's successful, he's obviously smart and a hard worker. If this guy is out, who could possibly be in? Who could possibly be in? And, and Jesus says, with man, it's impossible. It's impossible. It's like trying to get to the night slot of the bank. It's not going to happen. It's an impossibility. But with God, anything is possible. Anything is possible. We can't earn our place in the kingdom. We can't perform our place into the kingdom. We can't, we can't give our way into the kingdom. We can't, we can't save our way into the kingdom. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. Peter, hearing Jesus, he's still confused, and he says, uh, he does a kind of cost-benefit analysis trying to calculate his return on his investment with Jesus. He's like, well, we've left everything. We've left our homes and followed you. What about us? Didn't we at least sort of get something out of this thing? And Jesus says, there's no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents, children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. In Mark, it says a hundredfold. Jesus is more demanding than we would have ever imagined. He demands every bit of it, every bit of us. And yet he's so much more generous than we would have ever expected. He's like, you, you think you gave something up to follow me? You have no idea what you're getting in return. You think you gave up your house to follow me? I am building you a, a place in paradise. You, you think you gave up a, 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 a spouse? That you are joined with the body of Christ. You are the bride of Christ. You think you gave up siblings or parents? Every older and younger saint, they are yours as family forever. You're getting a hundredfold on your investment, Jesus says. But it's scary to let go. It's scary to let go. I'll, I'll, let me close with this passage from Isaiah 46. The writer says, listen to me, O house of Jacob. The Lord speaking to his people. All the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth. Hear this. From before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to the gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. From the cradle to the grave, God has been the one moving you along, holding you tight. He is the only one who can bear you and save you. 
And maybe you're getting close to retirement years and it's impossible to think about letting go of anything or giving away anything because we're so afraid at what's going to happen in the next year or the next decade or the next 15 years. It's scary. And scripture says this passage reminds us, I am the one carrying you. I'm the one who made you. I'm the one who knows you from, from, the, from before your birth to your gray hairs. And every minute in between, we are so tempted to cling to the dust of the earth and God is handing out passes to paradise, right? But we just hold so tightly. For us to earn it, it's impossible. For us to inherit it by grace through faith in Christ, with God, anything is possible. Look to him this morning. Look to Jesus this morning the one who is rich in every imaginable way and gave it all up for us.